reading uh, Luke 9, 57 to 62 this morning. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Thank you, Susan. Just real quick before we get started, I just uh, want to say uh, a big thank you to the group that went and, uh, to Stockton this weekend and participated in our little local mission trip uh, to help a, a retired missionary rebuild uh, her home and do some, some work on that. It's just a great opportunity to, to see some of our people get out of the four walls of the church and go and serve somebody who's uh, committed their life to, to sharing the gospel overseas. So that, that's a fun thing. And uh, I'm, I'm excited Jim's got a little announcement for us at the end of service today, uh, some other opportunities we have in, in mission work. And so as I think about this lull we've had of not a lot of mission activity, I, I get excited about things like this little mission project we had in Stockton and this other opportunity that's coming down the pike. And I'm just uh, ready for us as a church to, to, to reload and recommit. I know Clark's got a group of youth going to St. Louis this summer uh, for, for missions. Uh, the gospel is, as Ron prayed, not just something we hear, but something we do. And I am excited to see us uh, getting back at that. Would you guys just pray with me as, as we begin? Lord, we uh, just ask that you come and be with us today, that you would fill this place and help us to hear your word and to be transformed by it. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here, here, here's my question to get started today. How many of you have ever been in an argument? I mean, anyone? Right, right. I mean, that's a dumb question, right? Of course, we all have been in arguments. Now, uh, in, in the house where I grew up, we became professionals at arguing. Okay, now, me and my brothers, uh, we, we, we fought. We didn't fight like hands and fists and yelling. We like to have discussions, Okay. All right, so between my dad and my brothers and I, fights were more like debates. And we tried to use logic and persuasion instead of that high volume and punch throwing to get our, uh, our points across. Now, naturally, as kids, you know, we still had our share of punch throwing and yelling. I'm not saying it never happened. Um, my mom will attest to that it did. But we really just learned to talk to each other. Like, our argumentation became a standard point of communication. And in fact, if you have ever sat around our family lunch table, uh, you've, you've seen this happen, all right? As we sit there and we talk, uh, our phrases and just basic conversation uh, becomes uh, this debate where we're trying to convince you of something. Even if you already agree, we're still going to convince you that you really do, in fact, agree. That's just how we work. 
and I didn't really notice this, though, until we started having people over that weren't a part of our biological family to Sunday lunch. And so I asked David and Doug if this is true, and they agreed. We'll just begin with this nice, informative conversation, and then all of a sudden our tone will change. And it will now be a debate, a debate of three-on-one who happens to already agree. And so we'll be talking, and things will go along, and then it, it, they'll just be like, yeah, you know, really, I, I just wanted to know where your mom got this recipe. <laughs> and the three of us will be like, yeah, but you needed to know that, like, the free market economy creates the most creative environment for creative cooking. You know, like, that, that's the way it goes. Now, that's kind of an extreme case of how argumentation goes in the Fields household. But I, I kind of use that to make my point, that one of the ways we argue, not just we as in the three of us, but in general, one of the classic ways to make a point is to bring it up in its extreme. And as we bring it up in its extreme, then we kind of just drop this truth bomb out there at the end. It's like, now deal with it, you know? All right, so I'm going to put this in its most extreme form or fashion and make you deal with it. In our text today, Jesus uses this strategy as he says some pretty controversial things. He just puts it out there in its extreme form, and we have to figure out what we are supposed to do with it. So uh, Susan already read our text for us today, and, and I think by the time we read a couple of the supporting texts around that passage that we read in Luke 9, I think we're going to see that what Jesus says is absolutely downright extreme. So from an argumentation standpoint, we have to ask two questions. First, what did he say? We have to actually evaluate the words that Jesus said. Then we have to ask the second question, which is, what did he mean? And what we will see is that Jesus is using an extreme case or several extreme cases to make his point. And within that extreme case, we need to understand the context and nuance so that we can get at the heart of Jesus' teaching. All right, now we, we already read that, that key text uh, today uh, as we're moving through the Gospel of Luke. And we can break that text down into three cases of people being presented with an opportunity to follow Jesus. And then Jesus basically does his best to talk them out of following him. Okay, so let's look back and see what Jesus said. So that was the first thing we have to do, right? What did he say? And then we'll be able to look at what he meant. Okay, so let's go ahead and look again at the passage that Susan read for us, starting in verse 53, going through 62 of Luke 9. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him. Now, what I want you guys to do is look for the word follow. The word follow is in this passage three times. All right, it says, I will follow you wherever I go. That's in verse 57. Then in verse 59, to another, he said, follow me. And then in verse 61, it says, uh, I will follow you, Lord. Okay, so we see that there each time. So we're talking about this idea of following Jesus. Then each time, Jesus tries to talk him out of it. And what does he say? First off, Jesus says in verse 58, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, now next in 59, 
He says, this person says, uh, I'll follow you, you know, after Jesus calls him. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay. Don't, don't, you know, like, think about that. Like, don't worry about burying your dad. Just follow me. All right. And then verse uh, 61, uh, he says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell uh, to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, now we're going to come back to verse 57 in a few minutes. I just want to deal with the rest of the text. Uh, I think verse 57 uh, will, will make a lot more sense when we come back to it a little bit later. But the first thing I want you guys to see, I already drew attention to it, is this word follow. We have two people who say they, they almost volunteer without invitation to follow Jesus and one who gets an invitation. And in all three uh, situations, the discussion revolves around whether or not they're going to follow Christ. And we see basically Jesus give three reasons why I would say following Jesus is a bad idea. Okay, so he says, listen, if you follow me, you may not have a place to stay. You, you may not have a home. It's going to be uncomfortable. Next, he says, you're going to have to leave your family behind. And some of your family obligations may not be met. And then he says, and you won't get to say goodbye. You may not have the closure that you wish you had. Now, we can parse out all three of these responses to Jesus. And as a matter of fact, Elise asked me earlier this week, hey, are you going to have like a three-point sermon? I like those. They're so easy to follow. And, and I said, well, actually, there's a ready-made three-point sermon right in here. But I'm afraid if we looked at this as a three-point sermon, we would actually miss the forest for the trees. We would begin to look at each one as its own little tree instead of beginning to see what is it that we're supposed to see in the forest itself. What is it that Jesus means by what he says? If we want to know what Jesus meant, then I think we have to see all three as a whole. Now, what Jesus means, all right, so first question is what's he say? The second question is what's he mean? So Jesus means that to follow him is a huge commitment. To follow Jesus is a huge commitment. He means that to follow him makes Jesus the priority. The, the priority. Like the top one. Not a priority, but like the priority. I mean, I, I hope I'm emphasizing that enough so you guys see where I'm going. All right, so, so following Jesus does not mean that only part of our life is devoted to him. All right, now we love this, right? We love to divide and budget. That's a very Western American idea, okay? So, so following Jesus does not mean budgeting our time and giving one day of our week to him, okay? Following Jesus and devoting our life to him does not mean giving 10% of our money to him. Following Jesus and being devoted to him does not mean that we like fit him into the nooks and crannies of our family. When we look at these three responses, it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying that he is to be the priority in all things. Like, like all of them. Okay? Following Jesus is not fitting him into our lives. It means our entire lives revolve around him. 
Jesus is presenting the extreme cost of following him. We can say we want to follow him. We can even hear his invitation. But do we grasp the weight of what it means to follow him? Now, if this was the only place in Scripture, in Luke 9, that Jesus talked like this, it would be heavy enough. But like he, he talks this way often. We're going to look at three other passages where Jesus talks like this, and you're going to see the similarities of how this language overlaps each other. So let's look just a few chapters down the road at Luke 14. So we can see that this is like something he emphasizes three times in the book of Luke. But we're going to look at uh, the second one right here. Luke 14, verse 26 through 28 says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, strong word, right? Does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Ugh. Okay, but does he say that again someplace else? Why don't we look? Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39 says this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh, and that's some pretty crazy stuff, right? Like, I know you're sitting there saying, like, Brandon, what are you doing? Like, why are you preaching this? this you got to be careful. And to that I say, I hope I'm careful every week, right? But this is a heavy, and it is challenging, and it's in Scripture. And if it's in Scripture, church, what does that mean? we got to deal with it. If it's in there, then we have to deal with it. This would be so fun to just skip right over, you know, and move along. But it's there, and so what do we do with it? we got to chew on it. Now, what I want to do is tie this passage in Luke 14 and Matthew 10 into what we saw already in chapter 9, and then we're going to expand the context here. I think you'll begin to see it all work together. Okay, so uh, where does this begin? The, the first thing I want you to notice is the exclusive nature of, of following Jesus. In our passage that we read earlier, Luke 9, verse 62 says, it says, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right? It says, it, it says if, if, you, if you do this, if you're looking back, then you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 says, he cannot be my disciple. And Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 says, not worthy of me. So, so look at this language, not fit for the kingdom, cannot be my disciple, not worthy of me. That is pretty intense language. So, so what are the conditions that, that make us, as it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, unfit for the kingdom of God? 
What are the conditions that make us unfit? Now, you, you clever, genius Bible scholars who, who know the word would say something like, well, we're never really fit for the kingdom of God, right? And, and to that I say you're quite right. I mean, scripture is filled with all kinds of places that talk about uh, our, our lack of goodness, that talk about our depravity and our presence in sin, okay? Uh, I, I, think, I think that basically the Bible is very clear that we are all condemned sinners apart from Christ, okay? But hear me on this. It is a poor student of the Bible who looks first to what a passage does not say before he or she looks at what a passage does say, okay? So if the first thing we want to do is, is remove ourselves from that text so that we don't have to deal with it, we're in trouble. So what we first have to do is look at what it says. So I want to grant you, yes, apart from Christ, we are all unworthy sinners. But what does this passage say? What is it after? What is it teaching us? All right, so it says, a person is unfit for the kingdom if... Now let's go through those three things we saw in Luke 9. A person is unfit for the kingdom if... That idea of foxes not having holes and not having a place to lay their head. So a, a person is unfit for the kingdom if they prioritize personal property or safety, like, like having a home, over Jesus. You're not fit for the kingdom if you prioritize those things over Jesus. Next, what do we see? Let the dead go bury their dead. All right, so second, uh, you're not fit for the kingdom if you prioritize your family over Jesus. All right, and then the last one was was let me say goodbye. So you're not fit for the kingdom if you need closure at home before you follow Jesus. That's heavy. But Luke 14 says more. You cannot be called a disciple if you don't hate your family. Weird, okay? And, and not only do you not have to hate your own family, Luke 14 says you have to hate your own life. That's pretty intense. Matthew 10 says you are unworthy of Jesus if you are unwilling to take the side of Christ over family. Remember, he came to not bring peace but the sword, to, to turn father against son and vice versa. To be worthy of Jesus, one must choose Christ even if it causes conflict in the family. This has to be one of the most extreme ideas in the Bible. And it's not just said once. I've mentioned three. It's actually mentioned a fourth time, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So what is the takeaway? How do we rationalize such extreme teaching? Well, for time's sake, I simply cannot go through all the examples of Scripture that talk about the importance of taking care of your parents. I mean, Scripture teaches that plainly. It is extremely important that we take care of our parents. Scripture is 100% clear that we are to love and care for our parents. We are to love and care for our children. We are to honor and respect our parents. It's one of the Ten Commandments, okay? We are to love our neighbors. We are to be compassionate generous and kind people. Ephesians 5 talks about love between a husband and wife. And one of the correlations that Paul makes is that a husband is to love his wife 
like he loves his own body. So here we clearly see that we're supposed to have a, a, a modicum of self-love, self-value. Like this, how does this fit in? What is Jesus doing? Okay, I think we need to see that Jesus is using hyperbole or an extreme, uh, an absolute extreme to make his point. Okay, this, this should be seen as an absolute extreme. All right, what, what, I'd like, what I'd like you to think about is essentially how serious this means that Jesus is taking the first of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 gives us that first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's it. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's short. It's sweet, but man, if you really chew on that one, it is so powerful. What gets to be above God? I mean, the answer is quite simple. Nothing. Nothing gets to be above God. Now, think about the stories that are are presented in the Old Testament and in scriptures about this concept. I want you to think about Abraham and Isaac, and we just talked about this in TNT on Awana last Wednesday. Uh, so your kids are getting some good stuff in there, all right? So think about this in, uh, in terms of Abraham and Isaac. What does the angel of the Lord say to Abraham when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac? The angel says this, For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your one and only son, from me. So let me ask you this. Did, did God actually require the life of Isaac? No. He, he didn't actually require the life of Isaac. What did, he know, what did he want to show Abraham? He wanted to show Abraham how much Abraham was to be his God. That Abraham was to be his, or that God was to be Abraham's God above all things even to withholding your promised son, right? So so did God actually require the life of Isaac? Of course not. Child sacrifice is an abomination to God. Now, I want you to make that connection. Child sacrifice is an abomination to God. What did he ask Abraham to do? Give up his son. Did he actually ask Abraham to give up his son in the end? No. Okay, Now, think about this extreme that we have in the New Testament where Jesus says, lay it all aside. you got to hate your family. Let the dead bury their dead. All all these extreme things. What does the rest of Scripture tell us? The rest of Scripture tells us that not taking care of your family is an abomination, just like child sacrifice is an abomination. What's his point? His point is that he is to be God, and we shall have no other gods before him. He is to be the absolute top of our life. He is to be our 100% priority. So what does it mean to be fit for the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be called a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be worthy of Jesus? It means this. Our faith in him is to be absolute. He is to be 
the priority in our life. We are to put ourselves last, even to the point of death. Now, let's, let's take what we've seen here so far in the back part of Luke 9 and place it in the context of the rest of Luke 9. And I think what we'll see is that this level of priority is a great and glorious gift. All right, so two weeks ago, uh, when we, before we took our break off for Easter, we, we spent some time looking at this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And as we went through chapter 9 in particular, the answer to the question was that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Christ of God, and that he is the Son of God. So Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Peter makes his big confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now I want to pick up then immediately in verse 21, right after Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. It says this, beginning in verse 21 of Luke 9. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Okay, so the first thing I want you to see is that this passage uses the same kind of language that we've already seen. Okay, so look at verse 26. It says that whoever is ashamed of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of them. This sounds a lot like what we've already seen, being unfit for the kingdom, not a disciple, or unworthy of Jesus. So what I want you guys to see is that thematically, these, these two passages are connected. Okay? Now, who is Jesus? We answered that question two weeks ago. He is the Christ of God. Who is he? Christ of God. And what's the next thing he says? The next thing he says is that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. That sounds pretty extreme, right? The Christ of God is going to suffer, be rejected, and die. Now, it also tells us that he's going to rise from the dead on the third day, so there's hope there, right? But the thing that I want you to see is that he, he specifies that he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die. So who is Jesus? He's the Christ of God. And where is he going? He's going to the cross. He tells them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And what did we see in verse 57 
of that first passage we read with the three follow me's and the three reasons why that's a bad idea. Verse 57 says, as they were going along the road, that is, the road to Jerusalem, as they were on their way for Jesus to face his death. What is the setting? Jesus is on his way to die. And what's he say in verse 23? If any would come after me, in other words, if any would follow me, if we would follow him, what must we do? We must be willing to make him the ultimate priority. And what is the cost of following Jesus? Jesus says that we must take up our cross and follow him. Now, the cross would have felt very different to them in their time than it does to us in our time. When we talk about the cross, it's been romanticized by the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So for us, it, it's been destigmatized and actually given a place of honor. Not so in their day. They would not have yet had the resurrection of Jesus. So to them, when he says take up their cross, they knew exactly what that meant. That that was an instrument of torture, an instrument of suffering, an instrument of pain, an instrument of death. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said that just as he was going to suffer, be rejected and killed, they must take up their cross and follow him. By taking up the cross, Jesus meant that we must be willing to bear the same thing that he was about to face as he went on his way to Jerusalem. This could absolutely be literal death. Following Jesus may very well come down to a point where we have to lay down our lives and die for him. It absolutely could be. But Jesus, what I think he really meant here was that to follow him means that he is the absolute top 100% priority. Now, when we talk about following Jesus, it's literally walking in his footsteps, okay? It is literally taking in the things that he said, the things that he's taught, and just like Ron prayed earlier, that we would not just be hearers, but we would do it. So I want, like, literally think, follow the leader. If he's our leader, where he goes, we go. We follow after him. Now look at what he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Okay, guys, this is, this is Jesus identifying himself with his teaching. All right, they, he's saying they are inseparable. Following Jesus is agreeing with and walking in his words. So following Jesus means we take up our cross and we follow him. This means we live the way that Jesus has called us to live, and that is going to cost us. That's why Jesus says that if, 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 what good is it for us to gain the whole world and forfeit our soul? Because to follow him is the way to truly live. Church, it is for our good that we prioritize Jesus 
and his ways. It is for our good. This is, this is why he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The way to truly find the life we want is to die to the old life and its desires and to live to Christ and to live in his ways and in his desires. Did you hear that? It is to live in his desires. A fundamental aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to deny self. If we're finding ourselves saying, this is what uh, would make me happy based on, like if I did this, this makes me happy. Like, and you, guys, you guys heard my whole sermon several months ago about how Jesus actually wants us to be happy, right? Okay, all right. I'm talking about a different kind of happiness here. Okay, if chasing after the things of the flesh is what I need to prioritize to make me happy, then I am prioritizing the wrong things. Those things have to be denied, and then I substitute my desires for his desires, and when his desires are truly my desires, that's when I truly live. That's where life happens abundantly. It happens when our desires transform and conform to his desires. Does that mean, does that mean we, we don't get what we want? No, it means we change what we want. Do you see that? That's so important, so fundamental. It's not that we don't get what we want. It's not that we're supposed to be miserable in denial. It's that we deny the old man, we deny the old self, we are raised to new life in Christ, that new life in Christ puts off the old desires, clothes itself with the desires that are from God, and then as we pursue God, follow him, we get what we want because we want what he wants. That's what it's talking about here. We put the old man on the cross, and we let that old self die. Because if we pursue the things that old man wanted, we will truly die for eternity. This is all about priority. The way to truly live is to make sure that Jesus is our absolute priority. Family is a wonderful gift from the Lord. Part of the created order was for us to cling to our husbands and wives. Part of the created order was for us to, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Even, even after sin, God placed so many New Te uh, Old Testament laws and New Testament teachings about the protection of the family. But even family is to be second to God. Short, short story here. I tell our kids, and two of my kids are in here, uh, they know who, like, we're not supposed to have favorites, right? I've got four daughters. I'm not supposed to have a favorite, but I do have a favorite. Do you know who my favorite is? Elise. Elise is my favorite, okay? Uh, who, who do I love most? It, it's Elise. It is good for my kids that she is my priority. Okay, parents, I need you to hear me on this, okay? It is good for my kids that I love her more. 
It creates stability. It creates uh, dependency. It creates an environment where, where they can see love lived out in front of them. It is good for my kids that she's my priority. You know what's good for her? That God is my priority. What's good for my kids is that he's my priority. It's not that we take from them so that we can love God. It's that we love him more. It's multiplied. That's something my mom taught me. When you have more children, your love is not divided. It is multiplied. And that's such a brilliant concept. The same is true with the father. Putting him as priority does not divide our love. It multiplies our love. And so he says, make him first. Because this, this is where you will learn to grow in your love for others. I got so far off my notes. I don't know where I am. And I'm trying to figure out if we just wrap it. I can't, I can't skip this part. As you go through the rest of the context of Luke chapter 9, we, we begin to see that this theme keeps coming up of Jesus challenging, challenging his disciples to put themselves last. We see their failures. So at the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Peter accidentally uh, equate Jesus with Moses and Elijah by you know, saying, hey, let's make three tents. They come down from the mountain, and there's this boy that's demon-possessed, and they can't cast the demon out. We see that they failed at casting out this demon. Later in, in Luke chapter 9, the disciples get into a fight about who's the greatest. Now, I want you to see this. They have, uh, Peter's mis, uh, demeaned Jesus. They failed at casting out demons. Now they're arguing about who's the greatest. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 48, and this is, this is the conversation. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the, the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him uh, by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. They fundamentally misunderstood greatness. And Jesus says, if you really want to be great, what's the way to be great? The way to be great is to be low. And just to make sure that they understood, in the previous passage, he reiterated again the way he was going to lead and to serve and to love was to put himself last. Look at Luke chapter, 43, or chapter 9, verse 43b through 44. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, gosh, I love this. He says, I can almost, I, Jesus is far more gentle than me, so I'm going to read this in sin, and Jesus would never do that. I can just hear him seething through his teeth. Let these words sink into your ears, right? No, he says, let these words sink into your ears, right? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He says, for the second time, I'm going to die. Do you, do you not get it? What's the way to follow me? It's the way to death. Let it sink into your ears. Like, you got to get this. What's the priority? What's the priority? It is the glory of God. It is the kingdom of God. And the way to show that is we have to be willing to die to self. And how willing to die to self was Jesus? 
He literally went to the cross. And he tells us our responsibility to follow him is to take up our cross daily and die to self. What does it mean to be fit for the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus or to be worthy of him? It does not mean earthly greatness. It does not mean gaining the world. It does not mean power over demons. To be fit for the kingdom, to be a disciple, to be worthy of him, is simply to believe with all your heart. It is to believe in a way that says he is first, that Jesus is above all in your life. Believe in a way that counts all that this world has to offer as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe in a way that says, I count my old life dead. Believe in a way that says, wherever you lead, I will go. But church, there is grace when we fail, because we will fail. Remember Peter from last week? That boy failed. He said he would follow Jesus. He said he would go wherever Jesus went. And in the end, he denied Jesus three times in a row. We will stumble. We will trip as we follow. We will even lose track and wander down the wrong path. Okay, But following Jesus means that we know it's the wrong way. And when we are confronted with the truth... His spirit convicts us of going our own way. And so when we're under that conviction, we confess and we ask for grace and we follow him some more and we follow him some more and we follow him some more and we follow him some more. I want you guys to listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says this. It's Paul. He says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How are we to do that? What's it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been called? With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What's the way we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Humility, gentleness patience, eager to lay down yourself for the sake of unity. Church, we're never going to be able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in our own strength. The new life we've been given in the Holy Spirit is able as the Spirit moves in us. Like it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is the spirit in us that accomplishes his will. So as we close today, I want to ask you guys a couple of questions. Who are you following? Are you following yourself? Does your life revolve around you? Have you violated the first commandment and made a God of your own plans and desires. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
I want you to use this time as we sing, this, this time of reflection, to, to ask God if you are really seeking to follow him. I want you to ask God to begin to reveal the areas of your heart that you're holding back from him. Where aren't you following is a good question to ask. Are you struggling to follow him in your attitude toward your spouse or your children? Are you holding back your affection from God in some way? Are you lacking the compassion that Jesus has? Are you following him with your finances? Are you reflecting his moral character and how you live each day? What I want you to do as we sing these songs is ask God to help you follow him in whatever area in your life you find difficult. What we need to be willing to do is be willing to die to that rather than defend it. You hear me? We have to be willing to die to that thing rather than defend it. That's why Jesus says, whoever dies truly lives. Or if you're here today and you don't yet believe in Jesus, then, then I'd ask you to consider the question, who are you following? And the next question I'd like you to ask is, where is that headed? And is that really a place you want to go? If you're here and you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, what it is to place your faith in him, then, then you can come find me. Or as I love to say, you can find a, a, a Christian here in the pew next to you and ask them what it is to follow Jesus. The thing that I want you guys to know is we can. We can follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we just ask that you be with us as we uh, try to, to make you our priority. Father, change us. Shape us. Make us more like you. Father, reveal to us those things that we struggle to uh, sacrifice. Lord, help us to know that there is always more to give. And help us, Lord, to be more generous with you being willing to let more and more go. Help us, Lord, to see where you are going and help us to follow you. It's in your name we pray.